0: hello and welcome to another episode of make things that matter i'm your host andrew scottsko and this is where we explore how to apply science to unleash creative performance and thriving teams simply put this is about creating great things in the world and thriving as you do so First of all, I want to say thank you so much for listening. I know there is an endless supply of content out there that you could be listening to. And it means a lot to me that you're spending some of your day with me. So thank you so much. One way you can support the show is to subscribe to it just so that you don't miss any episodes. And make sure you share this one if it does resonate with you. If you can go ahead and give the show a five-star review and also a written review on Apple Podcasts, that would be incredibly supportive of me and the show because it gets it in more people's ears by lifting it up on those rankings. I really appreciate your consideration there. If it feels right to you, please do it. All right. I am very excited about today's episode, which is the first time that I've condensed a lot of my own study and learning about one of my favorite topics in one place. As the end of the year approaches, many of us are thinking about what changes we want to make, how we want to approach life and work differently going forward. So for better or worse, I've over the last decade probably obsessed more than most people about workflow and productivity and flow. Uh, I've really, really nerded out on it, probably to a level that annoys a lot of people close to me. Anyways. Uh, I recently had a conversation with a friend where we were talking about flow and creativity and basically how how to raise our game, how to up our individual creative performance at work. Now, we both work in leadership roles with technology teams, so we spend a lot of time changing context, zooming in, zooming out, collaborating with other people, and still trying to find a way to do our own deep work. It's a very common challenge in modern knowledge work. And he asked me how I thought about flow and how do I set up my day to get more creative output? And it, it turned out to be a useful conversation. So now I'm sharing that here with you. I get asked this a lot. So hopefully going forward, I can just point people to this and uh, it'll be useful for them when, when asked. So this is really about generating more flow and top quality creative output in your life. Now at a high level, we're only going to talk about two things here. First of all, you know, what is flow and why should we want more of it in our lives? And secondly, how do we get it? How do we get more flow in our lives? So as we go through this, I'll attempt to distinguish between the principles of flow that apply everywhere and anywhere, and then I'll also provide specific examples of how I've implemented those principles into my life so that you have something to go off of, you know, some, some way to see the principle made real in an example. Not that you have to do it that way, but just so you have something to see. All right, let's get into it. So we're going to start with understanding flow itself. Okay, what is flow? Flow is defined as an optimal state of consciousness where you feel and perform at your best, now, the concept of flow comes out of the world of positive psychology, and the godfather of flow is the late Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, may he rest in peace. That is how you say his name, by the way. It is uh, difficult to pronounce when you just look at it. He was a true gem and a real contributor to humanity, and we, we really lost a good one there. So rest in peace. Now, if you've ever felt in the zone, totally lost track of time during an activity, got swept away by it, that's flow. So you've probably tasted this, you've probably experienced this, even if you didn't know the label for it. And there's four really hallmarks of flow, and they're captured on the acronym STER, S-T-E-R. Those are selflessness, timelessness, effortlessness, and richness, as in sensory richness, like everything is very rich and, and, and vibrant and alive. You're, you're fully immersed in the present, and it's so rich. Now, said another way, four big things happen in flow. First, your action and awareness merge. That is, you become one with the moment. Secondly, your sense of self and your sense of self-criticality goes away. We all love that. And third, your sense of time distorts. Either it speeds way up or it slows down. But... And fourth, finally, your mental and physical performance skyrockets. Now, if you're curious about what's happening in your brain inflow, there are two main things I'll highlight. First, your brain goes into a state called transient hypofrontality. Now, that fancy term means that for a while, parts of the prefrontal cortex quiet down and all your self-criticality goes away. So you stop feeling self-conscious, you stop feeling self-critical. And now on a neurochemical level, flow is a crazy chemical cocktail of five or six neurotransmitters. And those are dopamine, serotonin, anandamide, norepinephrine, endorphins, and sometimes oxytocin, especially in group flow situations. Now, that is an ultra, ultra addictive mix of the same neurochemicals released by the following drugs. Cocaine, MDMA, LSD, marijuana, speed, and sex. Or hugs and cuddles if you prefer that for your oxytocin. Whatever. The point is, it is awesome. And it really, really feels great. Okay, now why do we want more flow in our lives? So first, flow is strongly linked with a greater sense of well-being, accomplishment, meaning, and enjoyment. For almost everyone, getting more flow in your life is going to make a big positive contribution to how you feel about yourself and your life. This is perhaps even more important as we navigate into this new post-COVID reality when, as Adam Grant wrote about in the New York Times, many of us are feeling a sense of languishing, the antidote to which is a sense of progress which contributes to flourishing, which is the ultimate highest human state um, that we can be in, and flow is an important part of flourishing. By the way, uh, all the links that I'm referencing here you can find either in the linked blog post or in the show notes that accompany this episode, so anything I mention, you should be able to find a link to it. All right, moving on. Secondly, flow is a major generator of progress. Every single measure of performance skyrockets in flow. I would assert that flow is the single most important factor in doing great, deep work. Not only will flow improve the quality of the work you do, but you'll actually end up getting more time back in your life because you'll get more out of your work hours. Now, that is assuming, of course, you have healthy boundaries around your work. Now, the dark side of flow is that it is so amazing That we can actually become addicted to our pathways into flow an example of this is like an extreme sports junkie so for example maybe an obsessive base jumper but it can actually happen with almost any activity Uh, even something as commonly practiced as yoga flow is not tied to any one activity it is a psychological state and it arises based on certain conditions now certain activities and environments are more conducive to flow due to having more flow triggers which we will discuss in a minute but in short Unless you already have so much flow in your life that the people close to you are worried that your flow activities are taking over your life and harming you in some way, you stand to benefit from more flow. Okay, next, I'm going to go over some of the foundational principles of flow that you really need to understand uh, to understand how this works. And then we'll move into some examples of how I put this into action. And so you can have an example of what it looks like in practice. All right, let's talk about principles of flow. The first thing to know and the most important thing to know is that flow follows focus. It is a game of attention. I'm going to say it again. Flow is a game of attention and flow follows focus. If you remember nothing else from this piece, remember that. Flow is a game of attention. Everything we'll cover here is about driving your attention into the present moment and keeping it there because that is the only way that flow happens. The second thing you want to know about flow is that it's probabilistic, not deterministic. That means you can increase the likelihood of getting into flow, but it's never guaranteed. There's no formula that will produce flow every single time. Flow is emergent. It emerges and it generally happens in a four-stage cycle that goes from struggle to release to flow and recovery. So first is struggle. First, you have to struggle with a task for a little while while your brain is loading in all the information. And just so you know, this is generally not the most pleasant thing. Uh, the time this takes can vary depending on the task, but for, you know, day to day things, I find it often takes me about 20 to 30 minutes in the struggle phase. Then we have release. Eventually we either relax into the activity and our mind kind of relaxes and lets go out of the struggle phase, or we end up taking a break often to return later and quickly fall into flow. One of the few things you can't do, by the way, to move through this release phase is watch TV. The way that it affects your brainwaves will block you from getting into flow. So if you think watching TV will be the break that moves you from struggle into flow, think again, that's not going to work. Okay, third is finally is flow itself. Ah, that sweet, sweet flow we all seek. This is where the magic happens. And finally is recovery. Recovery does not get talked about enough, but flow takes a lot of resources, especially on a neurochemical and neurobiological level. Your brain and body are putting out a lot of energy and they need a break afterwards. So it is important to actually recover well. Finally, realize that flow is a learnable, buildable skill. As my friends at the Flow Research Collective say, "The more you flow, the more you flow." This is called flow proneness. Now, if you want to go deeper into the subject of flow after this episode, I highly recommend checking out Episode Twelve with Rhian Doris and Connor Murphy, co-founders of the Flow Research Collective, along with Stephen Kotler. Uh, That episode is fantastic. And FRC is the leading research and training organization for flow science out there. They are terrific. And that conversation goes way deeper into all of this. So I recommend checking it out. Again, the link is in show notes. All right, now let's talk about flow triggers. As I mentioned, flow is an emergent state, which means that you have to make it more likely to happen, but you can't force it. Now you can do this by understanding the principles we've already covered and also flow triggers. Flow triggers are factors that increase the likelihood of getting into flow. There are many identified flow triggers, including those that are more relevant to group situations. But here I will list out five that are more relevant and an individual can focus on. For more on flow triggers, check out the linked piece uh, on Stephen Kotler's website. So the main flow triggers that you can immediately put to use as an individual are the following five. Number one, total concentration in the present moment. Two, immediate feedback. Three, clear goals. Four, the challenge skills balance. And number five, structuring your time according to mind states and mental energy. These are the levers you can most directly pull to enhance your own experience. Let's go over each briefly and then discuss concrete ways to do this. Okay, first, concentration in the present moment. This is exactly what it sounds like. Your attention has got to be in the present moment on the task at hand to get into flow. When your flow is broken and your attention's pulled out of the task at hand, often it's lost and you have to start all over again. This is so frustrating. If you've experienced this, if you've experienced yourself being deep in flow and then getting pulled out because somebody, I don't know, walked up to your desk and interrupted you, uh, you have felt viscerally how frustrating this is. By the way, if you work with engineers or software developers and you've ever wondered why they seem so miffed, so annoyed when they are interrupted, this is why. They were in a great zone or a great flow state and then now they have to start all over uh, and get all the way back into the zone, which is frustrating and takes a while. Uh, so this is actually what's going on, why it's so frustrating. All right. Number two, the second flow trigger, immediate feedback. Now, ideally, your environment and task are giving you rapid feedback about what you're doing that is or is not working towards your goal. This makes the activity more engaging and you're dynamically adapting to the feedback towards a goal. This is one reason, by the way, that programming, for example, can be so addictive and flow prone. A programmer, as I was just mentioning, can be rapidly writing code and testing it against the system piece by piece, building up something that works. Back when I was a full-time engineer, this was absolutely one of my favorite things about the job. I could get hours of delicious flow every day, and frankly, it felt great. And I miss it sometimes. Okay, number three, clear goals. To me, this is often the simplest, but also kind of the hardest trigger to get right. It's It's sort of deceptively simple. Now we can't get into flow until we can immerse ourselves in an activity, and we can't do that until we know what we're supposed to do in that activity. Whatever we can do to make the goal of this activity ridiculously clear, the better. If you get to a work session that you want to be in flow on and you have to stop and think about what do I need to do here, your odds of getting in the zone, they just went way down. Now, there are two sort of tells to indicate if your goals for a session are clear enough. Number one, if you feel any resistance to starting a task, it's probably not clear enough. This is a key reason, by the way, to separate out your strategy and planning from your execution, which we'll talk more about in a minute. Second tell If you get to the end of a work block and there is any ambiguity as to whether or not you completed the task successfully, well, your goal was not clear enough. Now, one way to do this for something that is a little bit less clear is like exploratory research, for example, is to add a time criteria such as I'm going to research how this thing works for 45 minutes. If you do that at the end of 45 minutes, congratulations, you you did what you said you were going to do. Okay, fourth, the challenge skills balance. There is a sweet spot between the level of difficulty of a task and your level of skill. Ideally, you want a challenging activity that is absorbing, and part of that is that it meets or slightly exceeds your level of skill. Now, if you have a task that you want to be in flow on and it's below your level of skill, see what you can do to make it more challenging and interesting. One example of this is sort of gamifying your email. Can you get through all your email in 20 minutes instead of the hour that you'd originally planned? That extra challenge level can sometimes be enough to do the trick and make what is otherwise boring interesting enough to actually capture your attention. It's also uh, a surprisingly common example of a place that one can get into flow that I definitely had not thought of. See the show notes and the blog post for a graphic that shows you sort of the flow zones and the challenge-skill balance. All right, another trick you can do if you're temporarily on the anxiety side of the challenge-skill balance where the challenge is a little too high for your skill level uh, or you're feeling overwhelmed is actually to practice gratitude. Find something, find things to be grateful for in the moment And this can reduce your anxiety and stress levels enough to increase your odds of getting into flow. This is one trick I've heard of elite extreme sports athletes using before a major competitive run with a lot on the line. Like I've heard of uh, somebody doing this before a gold medal run in uh, snowboarding halfpipe, for example. Okay, fifth and final flow trigger we're going to talk about today. Structure your time according to mind states. Now, this isn't technically a flow trigger, according to the research, but I think this is such an aid to flow that I consider it practically equivalent, so I want to cover it here. The core idea here is that our energy changes throughout the day, and so our minds are more suited to different kinds of work at different times. These rhythms, they tend to be pretty stable for people. Once you figure out your rhythm, you can increase your likelihood of getting to flow even more. This is something I've experimented with over the years. It does often take some time, but over over time, you will get a sense of yours if you're paying attention. Now, this idea has been explored extensively in both the research and in practice in high performance environments. The first book I recall reading on this was uh, The Power of Full Engagement by Jim Lohr. More recently, I read the excellent Mind Management, Not Time Management by David Kadavy, who incidentally, by the way, I have a soon-to-be-released episode with that will be coming out very soon, so stay tuned for that. I highly recommend his book. The main idea is that there are seven mind states that are involved in creative work. And some of those states are better at certain times of day than others. Those seven states are the following. Prioritize, explore, research, generate, polish, administrate, and recharge. So those are sort of the seven states that cover pretty much anything involved in in work and certainly in creative work. And some of those are going to be better for you at certain times of day. For our purposes here, talking about like getting into deep flow and doing really deep work with it, generate is the most important state. This is the state where you are aiming to produce new usable creative output. Like this is the one where you're, you're really going for it. You are making the thing. You can get into flow in any of these states, but generate is far and away the most important time to have flow. Check out the article I linked to in the show notes. By the way, for more on this, uh, Academy has some excellent material here as both an article and a book, both of which I recommend. Now, a general rhythm that most people follow is being better at convergent thinking in the morning and divergent thinking in the afternoon. For some people, it's the opposite, but that seems to be a general pattern. Now, this resonates with a common pattern that many people feel like they're, they have their peak creative output in the morning, where their brain is synthesizing and generating top output from all the, uh, all the information they've ingested maybe the day before, uh, but they're really able to pull it all together and create something with it. Now, you can set up this state even better, by reviewing the relevant material for that generate-focused work session the evening before, and then letting that information incubate and percolate in your subconscious overnight. That way, your brain can stitch it together into a flow-driven generate state the next morning. Now, using Kadavy's seven states, this means that for most people, generate with flow-powered convergent thinking should dominate the early part of your day, maybe with some focus research mixed in. Some other states like explore and polish, they can also leverage flow. Of course, I mean, look, anything can leverage flow, but these other states, they really don't merit your best creative hours and your best creative energy. That really should be saved for the generation state and and maybe a little bit for research, but really for generate. Now, again, I highly recommend reading Kadavy's mind management book, which I've linked to in show notes. All right. Now, with these flow fundamentals under our belt, let me wrap this up by sharing a few examples of how I actually do this. Now, personally, I often find it takes me about 20 or 30 minutes to go through the struggle phase, the struggle and release phases of the flow cycle, and then actually get into flow. Now, here are some approaches that I use all the time uh, to increase the chances of me getting into flow. And I have to say, they work pretty darn well now. I can get into flow most of the time that I want to. All right. So now, again, as I cover these examples, keep in mind the distinction between general principles of flow that we just went over and the many ways that they can be applied. What I'm about to cover here are just the ways of increasing your flow proneness uh, that I am currently using. You're going to find your own and that's great. And also keep in mind, this is sort of an idealized state, right? I don't hit this every single day, but like when it's really firing on all cylinders, it looks something very close to this. When I am very serious about getting into flow, this is what I tend to do. So I'm going to cover three things now. I'm going to cover one, how I manage attention and block distractions, two, how I structure my time, and three how I set up my work and time blocks in advance for when I get to a work session. Now, I could probably do an in-depth piece on each of those, but let's just get into it. All right, first, managing attention and blocking distractions. This is the basic blocking and tackling of focused knowledge, work, and flow. You have got to set up your physical and your digital environment to minimize distractions when you're going to try and get into flow and do deep work. There's just no other way about it. So within your physical environment, you know, you want to... Make it quiet, but not too quiet. Um, Total silence usually actually is harder for most people than some background noise. Uh, Ambience of around 70 decibels is often good, which is about the level of like a a somewhat noisy coffee shop of white noise. Uh, But you can also put on noise-canceling headphones if you're somewhere noisy or where people are talking and their words are distracting you. That's what I do most of the time. Um, Find a place to work, doesn't have loud noise or distraction. Um, Also, if you're trying to do more focus, kind of heads-down, convergent work, Uh, A lower ceiling room can be helpful. And if you're trying to do more broad, connective, creative, divergent thinking, uh, then a high ceiling room or a more open space, especially with a view, can be really helpful. All right, now digitally speaking, the biggest thing, you got to kill the notifications. Turn off notifications by putting your phone, your computer in do not disturb or airplane mode. Um, You got to close chat, you got to close text, et cetera, you know, close Slack. Really anything that can send you a notification and break your focus during this session needs to be silenced. Okay, so let's talk about tools that I use to manage attention and block distractions. So first off, on my computer, I use two tools, both of which I am a huge fan of, focus and freedom. Uh, By the way, I'm working in the Mac and iOS ecosystem, but there are equivalents for other platforms, whether that's Windows or Linux or what have you. Uh, But this will give you at least an example. Now, I have freedom running all the time on my computer. It's sort of a running a sort of passive block list. Basically, during a preset schedule of work hours, Freedom is blocking me from a long list of websites and applications which are distracting to me, like certain blogs or certain, um, like, or Netflix. Uh, This is my digital equivalent of taking the junk food out of the house when you're on a diet. I'm basically protecting myself from my own temptation in the moment by setting up something in advance. Now, I also use focus when I want to have a really hardcore focus work session, especially if I'm struggling and getting distracted by messages or email or web browsing or, or whatever. I turn on focus for a set period of time. And that app blocks me from pretty much everything that I find distracting, including email, Slack, and iMessage. So if I keep, you know, reflexively opening Slack or my text messages or something like that, it literally blocks me from it. It won't let me. This is gold uh, because it blocks you from your own worst temptations. Now, I can't even, again, I can't even open these applications and I can't even turn off the block until time is up. I have also set up the the app so that it activates do not disturb mode on my Mac when I start a focus block. This is very handy because it silences all those notifications automatically. Okay, now on the phone, I tend to put it in focus or do not disturb mode during every single session, and frankly, it spends much of its day this way. In iOS 15, Apple recently released more sort of tunable and granular focus modes that you can play with, but I haven't gotten around to implementing those yet, and I just generally kill notifications. I also strongly suggest you turn off as many notifications as you possibly can for the apps on your phone. If I had a magic wand... I could do one thing to improve the world's productivity. I would literally do this. I would just turn off everyone's notifications except their calendar. I want to control what can reach out and interrupt me. And so I have a rule that by default, I decline notifications from apps. The only app that is essentially unlimited access to interrupt me with a notification is my calendar. And by the way, in general, even a short meditation practice of a few minutes every day will be helpful in developing the capacity to bring your mind back to the present moment Mindfulness training helps you to do that. helps you to train focused attention and the ability to come back again and again and again. Excellent for this. Okay, moving on to how do I structure my time? So structuring time and structuring attention, they go hand in hand. Now I have blended two approaches to this. First, daily and weekly planning from Cal Newport. And then secondly, the previously mentioned creative mind states outlined by David Kadavy. Now the key insight here is that task lists are pretty useless and never ending. If something isn't in my calendar, it basically doesn't exist and it's probably not happening instead everything I'm doing needs to make its way onto the calendar and have time allocated for it this is at the core of Cal Newport's approach to implementing the ideas in his phenomenal book deep work which if you have not read you should go read also from David Cadavy's excellent book mind management not time management which I already talked about I learned about those seven mental states of creativity so some tools I use to actually structure my time uh, I use two tools I use Cal Newport's time block planner which is a, a a physical paper planner uh, that you can use every single day for time blocking. And I also use Fantastical, I don't know how to say that, Fantastical, Fantastical, whatever, Fantastical as my calendar app on uh, Mac and iPhone. Now, then what I do is I map out the time blocks for what I need to do, and I try to batch them into the parts of my day where my mental energy is optimized for the type of work that that time block needs, which is actually how you implement David Cadavy's post on uh, the seven mental states for creativity. Now, this cycle happens on a daily and weekly basis. What that looks like, I do a rough outline of the week, trying to cover the big items and get them all the way onto the calendar. Uh, I usually do that on Sundays, sometimes Monday afternoon. And then at the end of each day, I adjust and set up the next day. This is part of the mental shutdown routine that Cal Newport advocates for. And it's one of the last things I do in the workday. It actually really helps me let go of work and be present for whatever it is I'm doing in the evening uh, and and actually be present and, and not be ruminating on work. Now, this is where the rubber really meets the road. Now that we have time blocked out, how do I set up those time blocks and structure the work that goes in them? This is the very tactical level where flow lives and dies. Focus in here. I've got five steps for you here. Okay, first, separate planning and execution. Number two, time block. Number three, adjust the time block to accommodate the challenge skills balance. Fourth, batch and organize your time blocks by energy type or mind state. Again, back to David Cadavy. And fifth, remove friction. Okay, let's go through these really quickly. First, separate planning and execution. Separate your planning and your strategy time from your doing time. And to put this in the language of Kadavy's creative mind states, you need prioritization and admin time to be separate from your time for generation, uh, for exploration, for research, and for polishing, but especially, especially for generation. I like to do a big planning session, uh, which is in the prioritization mind state, on either Monday afternoons or Sunday nights to set up the week, and then, as I mentioned, a short shutdown and setup block at the end of each day. The weekly session is to roughly plan out the week, and the daily one is to plan the next day in detail and to set up clear goals for every single work session in the day, as well as to remove the friction of starting those tasks in advance by, you know, so to speak, setting the table with everything I'll need when I get to that task. A Second thing, time block and set clear goals for each session. As I said, block out the amount of time needed for the task at hand. At first, when you're doing this manually and actually estimating the time needed, you're going to get this wrong. And that's fine. And usually you'll underestimate it first. For any meaningful deep work, I've learned that I, try, I need to really have time blocks of at least 90 minutes and, and sometimes up to about three hours to get really deep and create a ton of output in a, in a focused amount of time. Now, once you block out what feels like the right amount of time for the activity, define clear goals for it. Remember, you want to make each time-blocked task so clear that when you get to it, you feel no resistance or confusion about what you need to do. It should be crystal clear exactly what you need to do and how to get started. Help your future self out and leave yourself a breadcrumb trail now while you have the context already in mind. Okay, third, adjust the time block for the challenge skills balance. So you can stretch time out to give yourself more time for a harder task that you feel anxious about, which will reduce your anxiety, or... If a task is rote, tedious, or not that challenging, you can crunch down the time to give yourself, the time that you give yourself to make it more challenging, more interesting. This is just one way of practicing that wonderful meadow life skill of finding ways to make things interesting when they aren't really inherently that interesting. Okay, fourth, batch and organize by energy type and mind state. Batch this work block and or organize it with other tasks that require a similar mind state. So for example, if I have several explore tasks that need to be done, I'll try to batch them into a similar time of day with other explore tasks, which for me is usually in the early to mid afternoon. I'll also often stick an admin block in this time of day as neither of these mind states really needs my best creative energy or or sort of max flow. Okay, fifth, remove friction. My goal is to remove as many of the distractions and the annoying cognitive load as possible so that my brain can spend its time in creative modes as much as possible. Now, this looks like doing a few things Typically, when I am setting up a work item uh, at the end of the day in my sort of planning session where I set up the next day. This involves a few steps, typically when I'm planning out work items for the following day during my end of day shutdown routine. First, I'll link to all relevant documents and resources in the calendar event itself. Often, I'll link to a specific Trello card that has all the context and information that I need for a task consolidated in one place. Second, if I have an important creative generation session, I'll try to skim the relevant prep material toward the end of the previous day so that my subconscious has time to percolate on it. This is the incubation stage of creativity. Third, I'll add the location of any meetings, either the physical address or the direct link to the call, such as a Zoom call, into the calendar event itself. I do not want to go digging around in my email or messages for that information when it's go time. I just want to flow from one thing to the next. If I'm getting in the car, I want to open my phone, hit the address and have it open in my Google Maps and I can just start driving. Or if it's uh, on my computer, I just want to click the calendar notification when it pops up, click the link and drop right into the meeting without having to go into my email. Fourth, in prioritization or in an earlier research session, I will set clear goals and potentially outline what I need to create later on so that when I get to creation, I know what I have to create and I don't have to stop and think about it. Now, look, this is a simple concept. It can show up many ways. The key principle is to remove as much friction as possible so that when you get to your work, you don't have to stop and think and you can just drop into your flow and go. This is one of those little optimization tricks that adds up over time in my experience. But again, this is an optimization. Handle the other parts first. Okay, now let's talk really quickly about the tools I use to set up work sessions. This is where the time blocking and calendar come to life. For calendar, I use Fantastical on Mac and iOS. I prefer to the default calendar app, especially for its quick event entry feature. As I mentioned, when I add a work block to the calendar, I try to add direct links to any and all resources on the calendar event itself. I also make extensive use of cross-app linking with Apple's X callback URL scheme, which allows you to deep link to an item inside another app. And this is also a consistent scheme across both Mac and iOS. So, for example, I'll have a link to a Trello card in my calendar event that goes with a work block. And then that Trello card may have a link to a note with detailed planning thoughts or other notes inside my bare notes app. The fact that these links work equally well and seamlessly on my laptop or my phone is fantastic and is about as close to a seamless experience as I've been able to create so far. And finally, last but certainly not least, when I start a work session, don't forget, I activate the distraction blocking tools that we went over previously, such as do not disturb or airplane mode and freedom and focus. Okay, so there you have it, a whirlwind tour, a whirlwind tour of what I've learned so far and implemented about creating more flow in my day-to-day work life. I hope this is helpful to you to help you understand the principles of flow so you can implement it in your own life and also to see some real examples of how it's done. Thank you so much for listening and sharing this journey with me. Please let me know on Twitter and via email what about this resonated with you, what you found useful, and, and let me know what you implemented. And again, please go ahead and share this episode if it resonated with you And if you can leave a five-star rating and a written review on Apple Podcasts, that would be incredibly supportive to me and the show. Thanks so much for listening. Go make things that matter. We'll see you out there. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this, I'd be so grateful if you could do me a favor and take about 25 seconds to leave a rating and review on Apple podcasts. That helps me reach way more listeners. And it also helps me bring you more great guests. As always, please feel free to reach out to me anytime at connect at make things that And until next time, my friends leave them better than you found them. See you out there.